Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. Wait, why do I have the number 103 carved into my forehead? In a world overflowing with movies, we need a hero. Someone to separate the bad from the good. Hi everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama episode 103, The Frighteners. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi and welcome to you all, whether you are a returning listener or a brand new listener to this podcast. No matter how you got here, it's great that you're here, it's great that you're with us, thank you so much for being here. To anyone who provided feedback for the previous episodes... So I did a special bonus episode on The Room and The Disaster Artist. I got the actor who was in The Room, Greg Sestero, to join me. And that episode's reception was overwhelmingly positive. And so I guess, (laughs) I guess that from now on, Sam from Movie Reviews in 20 Qs is going to be planning my schedule going forward because he is vindicated. He knows this because I've told him. He was right. And I did an episode on The Room and it was really popular. So I assume Sam is listening as well because this movie is a New Zealand movie. So I believe he will have a vested interest in this movie. So hi Sam, if you're listening. Yes, you are still vindicated by the way. And yeah, I also did an episode on Deadpool as well, which was released last week. If you're listening to this episode the week after. And obviously, yes, this episode is on the Frighteners. And you're probably wondering, the Frighteners in July, has she gone mad? Well, no, actually, (laughs) I haven't gone mad. The Frighteners was released in July 1996. So that was 25 years ago, to be precise. I didn't plan to do this for the 25th anniversary. Genuinely, I just wanted to talk about the Frighteners because It's a movie that is way, way more important than many people give it credit for. So the fact that this is coming out about the same time as its 25th anniversary is, well, it's it's a happy happenstance, so to speak. But we've got a lot of really interesting stuff to talk about with The Frighteners. I'm really, really excited to talk about it. So we're going to jump straight in. And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to listen to the trailer for The Frighteners. 
There has been a destructive force unleashed on this town such as I have never seen. Oh my god, I don't believe this is not happening! We have got a poltergeist! Okay, well, folks, I can do a clearance, but uh, it's not gonna be cheap. Although I do offer a six-month guarantee. That fellow takes us totally for granted. Hey, Stuart, in or out, huh? Frank Bannister had a remarkable ability. Psychic investigator? To communicate with the dead. You, you could see spirits? Emanations are normally confined to the cemetery. You cannot push spirits around! Although they do escape. And an uncanny knack. We're gonna scare the living daylights out of your parents. For making a profit off the living. We're supposed to be his business partners. Everyone says that you're a fraud, but I've seen what you can do. Give it up, Frank. Death ain't no way to make a living. But now... Some things put the fear of death in the living. What is happening to me? And send the dead yes! running for their lives. I've seen a figure in a cape. That was the soul collector. When your number's up, that's it. Frank, we got problems. All these murders that have been going on in Fairwater, they're gonna pin them on you. Pictures and Robert Zemeckis. You're next, pal. And acclaimed director Peter Jackson. We don't stop till the screaming starts. Okay? The Frighteners. Frank Bannister, an architect turned psychic investigator, develops the psychic ability to interact with ghosts after the tragic death of his wife in a car accident. Rather than continue and finish the dream home he intended to build for he and his wife, Frank decides to use his newly developed psychic abilities to con people into believing their homes are haunted and in need of his services to rid their lives of paranormal entities for a small fee, of course. But when he discovers that an entity resembling the Grim Reaper is killing people, marking numbers on their forehead beforehand, Frank is framed as the killer and has to not only prove his innocence, but stop the Reaper from killing more. Let's go through the cast of this movie. We obviously need to start with the inimitable Michael J. Fox as Frank Bannister, Trini Alvarado as Lucy Linsky, Peter Dobson as Ray Linsky, John Astin as The Judge, Jeffrey Coombs as Milton Dammers, Dee Wallace Stone as Patricia Bradley, Jake Boosie as Johnny Bartlett, Chi McBride as Cyrus and Jim Fife as Stuart. The Frighteners was written by Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh and it was directed by Peter Jackson. And this is the first appearance for Peter Jackson on Verbal Diorama. It's not going to be the last, I can tell you that. And he's a director who I think needs little introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway. He's now the third highest grossing film director of all time. Obviously for a certain little trilogy that I don't suppose many people know of called The Lord of the Rings and then another little trilogy called The Hobbit along with a King Kong movie as well but back in 1996 he wasn't the huge name director that he is nowadays and as I alluded to in the intro The Frighteners deserves some serious respect for many things but mostly the introduction of Peter Jackson not so much to the public as let's be fair this is a movie that didn't do very well but to the industry as a whole. 
So Peter Jackson is a New Zealand-born filmmaker and he was mainly known for his low-budget splatter horror movies. He released the science fiction horror comedy Bad Taste in 1987, which I watched actually for the first time a few months ago. And that movie took years to make. Many of the actors were Jackson's friends, they were working for free, and the shooting was confined to weekends due to Jackson's full-time job. Bad Taste... I mean, it is quite a gross movie, I'll be completely honest. There are some scenes that actually made me feel genuinely ill. But that movie caught the eye of the New Zealand Film Commission, who injected the funds for Jackson to actually finish that movie. He then worked on the musical comedy Meet the Feebles, released in 1989, co-written by Fran Walsh. And he would also start his collaborations with special effects team Richard Taylor and Tanya Roger, who would work on all of Jackson's movies going forward. Horror comedy Brain Dead, or Dead Alive, as it was called in the US, was then released in 1992. But it was Jackson's next feature that caught most people's eyes, and that was Heavenly Creatures, notably the debut role for Kate Winslet. It was based on a real Parker Hall murder case where two schoolgirls in 1950s Christchurch murdered one of their mothers. Heavenly Creatures received considerable critical acclaim, and even garnered an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Screenplay. The success of Heavenly Creatures won the backing of Miramax, who promoted Heavenly Creatures in the US and also signed Peter Jackson to a first-look deal. During the script writing of Heavenly Creatures, Jackson and his partner Fran Walsh conceived the idea for The Frighteners, and in 1992 wrote a three-page treatment and sent it to their talent agent in Hollywood, and if you've listened to episode 66, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight, you'll know that The Frighteners was originally intended to be a spin-off film of Tales from the Crypt. Robert Zemeckis, who produced Tales from the Crypt, read Jackson and Walsh's treatment and hired them to write a full-length screenplay in 1993, which was completed in early 1994. Zemeckis was so impressed with the script, he decided it wasn't suited to be Tales from the Crypt movie, which is kind of good because then it gave us the excellent Demon Knight, which is still such an underrated horror classic, by the way, and instead made a deal to executively produce The Frighteners with Peter Jackson directing and with funding and distribution from Universal Pictures. The Frighteners was greenlit on a $20 million budget with additionally, and most importantly, complete creative control and final cut privileges for Jackson and Zemeckis. This could have only been achieved with Zemeckis's clout at Universal and additionally Jackson and Walsh's fresh Oscar nomination for the screenplay for Heavenly Creatures. But Peter Jackson wanted more than that. He wanted to film The Frighteners completely in his home country of New Zealand and Universal and Zemeckis agreed on the condition that the film be set in and look similar to the Midwest United States. But going back to Heavenly Creatures for a brief moment because... For that movie, Peter Jackson co-founded a small company you may have heard of called Weta Digital. Weta Digital is now one of the leading effects companies in the world and Weta was created to help make practical effects for heavenly creatures. The Frighteners would only be Weta Digital's third project. But remarkably, and this is an ongoing theme in this episode, Weta Digital would go from this movie via contact straight to the Lord of the Rings trilogy in less than five years. Just keep that in mind when you look at this movie and then if you even try and comprehend and compare it to Lord of the Rings. And The Frighteners would obviously be Peter Jackson returning to the horror genre 
And thanks to the links that he had via Robert Zemeckis, he got introduced to the only man who he ever saw as Frank Bannister, Michael J. Fox. Fox had seen Heavenly Creatures in Toronto and Zemeckis introduced the pair. Fox was so impressed with Heavenly Creatures that he immediately wanted to work with Peter Jackson. He read the script for The Frighteners. He was attracted to its weirdness and the challenges involved with making a movie in the mid-90s that relied so heavily on special effects. And while Michael J. Fox's star power undoubtedly gave The Frighteners the credit it needed, this is Michael J. Fox's final leading role in a movie. He was suffering from Parkinson's disease. He didn't publicly disclose his diagnosis till 1998. And the true star to come out of The Frighteners was twofold, threefold if you count Peter Jackson himself. Because the true stars of this movie were Weta Digital and New Zealand. Regardless of how the effects have aged, which is honestly kind of okay to middling, kind of, I guess, you can't help but be impressed at Weta Digital as a small New Zealand effects company, they had a mammoth task on their hands with this movie. Over half the cast were ghosts, a virtually unprecedented task in a Hollywood movie. And as we'll come to, the number of digital effects shots were more than almost any movie ever made up to that point. And they were all achieved by a tiny Kiwi company that had never done anything to this scale before. Which is one of the many remarkable things about this movie. There's so many genuinely remarkable things about The Frighteners. And it's, again, one of the reasons I really wanted to talk about this movie, because I feel like people need to know how important this movie is. So the entire production took place in New Zealand, with principal photography starting on the 14th of May 1995 until the 16th of November 1995. That was an over six month shoot, which was one of the longest ever approved by Universal. Scenes were primarily shot in Wellington and Littleton, with interiors shot at Camperdown Studios in Miramar. Six weeks into the shoot, cinematographer Alan Bollinger was in a serious car accident. John Blick would then join the production and alternate duties with Bollinger, and that's why both are credited. The lengthy shoot was mostly because scenes had to be shot twice. So once with the human characters, and then again with the ghost characters acting against a blue screen. Both shots had to be precisely timed for dialogue and action. The two elements were digitally composited into one shot using split-screen photography, there was also extensive prosthetics and makeup used to make the ghost look, well, dead, I guess. As <laughs> it always reminds me of a scene in The Mummy. And I know I talk about The Mummy a lot, just generally. It's episode 13 of this podcast, by the way. But when they first see The Mummy and they say that The Mummy looks juicy, <laughs> that's kind of how these ghosts look. They look juicy. There's basically ectoplasm coming out of, well pretty much every orifice on these ghosts. The judges' prosthetics were designed by Rick Baker and John Astin spent five hours in the makeup chair daily and the judges' detachable jawbone was a digital effect as well. The largest single undertaking for the team at Weta was the Grim Reaper or the Soul Collector. Originally conceived as a rod puppet, which Jackson admitted looked silly, they even thought about shooting live action underwater but eventually it was decided to make the character completely computer generated, a believable spectral entity interacting with the real actors. And out of all the computer effects, the Reaper genuinely is one of the best in this movie. The Reaper mostly holds up. I will completely admit that a lot of the effects in this movie don't hold up. The practical effects do, absolutely they do. But the Reaper, I think, still looks really, really great. There was a 30-strong crew at Weta, and they had never done anything like this before. 
VFX artist Gray Horsfield had an idea to write new code to build what is essentially flying cloth. Horsfield designed the Reaper and compared to the Rod Puppet, it looked so much more believable. He used multiple programs to create the Reaper, even admitting its creation was more of a hack than actual coding. For every movement, he would hijack other parts of the data to trick the software into doing what he wanted it to do. More remarkably, again, this was Gray Horsfield's first credited VFX work. And this is what he did. Jake Boosie would do moves on tape for the team to emulate on screen, a very early form of motion capture, you could say. Again, kind of foreshadowing what they would do in Lord of the Rings. And like many things in The Frighteners, the Reaper looks like an early version of the Ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings for a reason. Because a lot of this work, a lot of these things that they realised that they could do, they could code, a lot of this stuff was essentially, for the most part, recycled for Lord of the Rings. Obviously, it was a few years down the line. They had a lot more experience. They had a much bigger team. But essentially, without the Frighteners, we would not have Lord of the Rings. I, I really need to stress that. <laughs> I really do. Because if the Frighteners does anything for the world, it's that it gave us Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy. I mean, what a legacy. This podcast is all about the history and legacy and the legacy of the Frighteners is just unbelievable. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> I'm so blown away by this movie, actually. The effects team struggled under the weight of the special effects requirements. Obviously, it was a huge task for this really tiny company. Weta was very small and despite an 18-month post-production schedule for the effects, the team was largely underprepared for the immense amount of work that they had to do. With the schedule running behind, Robert Zemeckis convinced Wes Takahashi, animation supervisor for Industry Stalwarts Industrial Light and Magic, to come and assist Weta. Takahashi was impressed with what they'd achieved so far, but it looked like an impossible task to get the Frighteners finished on time. He suggested contacting Universal, who advised splitting the work and giving some to a US-based VFX company, Peter Jackson, though, refused. He wanted The Frighteners to be a showcase of New Zealand cinema. After viewing the rough footage, Universal was suitably impressed and acquiesced to Jackson. They gave him $6 million more, 15 new digital animators and additional workstations which were flown to New Zealand from the US. But for this, The Frighteners would also have to be bumped up the release schedule. It was originally planned for October 1996, it would now need to be ready for July 1996, aka summer blockbuster slot. For a movie based around death, it was kind of ironic, actually, that this change would be the beginning of the end for The Frighteners, because although no one knew it at the time, the highest grossing film of the year was also due out at that time. The other thing that sounded the movie's death knell was the Motion Picture Association of America. Peter Jackson had always wanted to deliver Universal a PG-13 horror comedy, and so when the MPAA rated the movie R, Jackson tried his best to omit graphic violence from the final cut, and agreed to remove 20 minutes of footage to get that PG-13 rating. But despite these changes, the MPAA still gave it an R rating. No amount of additional cuts would persuade them otherwise, and so Peter Jackson went back and added Milton Dammer's head exploding, because why beat them when you can join them? This is a movie that errs on the edge of being incredibly gory. It does have some very creepy visuals. 
It's kind of the right level of scare for me personally. But Peter Jackson had the final cut of the movie, so he released the movie that he wanted to release. Until a so-called director's cut came out in 2005, which added 12 minutes of additional footage. So not only was this now an R-rated horror comedy, it also faced up against the might of 90s Will Smith. Obviously, the movie that I'm talking about is Independence Day. Independence Day was a ridiculously huge success in the summer of 1996. Arguably, the Frighteners would have still struggled without Independence Day because of the R rating, but having the might of Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum kind of meant that this movie didn't really stand a chance. And despite the star power of Michael J. Fox, because obviously... We forget what a huge star Michael J. Fox was. In the late 80s and early 90s, he genuinely was one of the biggest stars in Hollywood. So the fact that he's in this movie and the fact that the Frighteners as a whole is often forgotten, it's almost like relegated into the just okay movies that didn't do great at the box office, which is really sad, actually. As I said, he worked for almost six months on this movie and obviously he was suffering from Parkinson's at the time as well. He found working away in New Zealand tough and basically after the shoot decided that he would focus on TV work going forward. He obviously got a, a role in Spin City. He lent his voice to some animated movie roles including Stuart Little and Atlantis The Lost Empire but he tended to stick to TV documentaries and voice roles until he fully retired in 2020. The Frighteners gave Michael J. Fox a chance to eschew the Marty McFly persona and try something a little different. And you can't really argue that Michael J. Fox is really genuinely great in this movie. He is doing something completely different to anything else. There is an air of mystery to his character. You're never really quite sure. <laughs> You're never really quite sure if he's actually a good guy or not. And Michael J. Fox would obviously go on to found the Michael J. Fox Foundation aiming to raise awareness and advanced research into alternative therapies as well as finding a cure for Parkinson's disease. The Frighteners is a really special movie for so many reasons for what came after, but the fact that this is Michael J. Fox's last live-action leading role I think is something else that deserves to be celebrated because he is a great actor, he's got such a great screen presence, he's not just Marty McFly, he is also Frank Bannister as well. And so... I would really like it if more people would actually go out and watch and appreciate The Frighteners. It's not on streaming, unfortunately. I had to buy a copy of it in DVD, but it's so well worth your time. If you ignore the slightly dodgy CG 90s effects, it is so well worth your time. And of course, the other thing that I love about this movie, I am a huge fan of the country of New Zealand, genuinely. I love the fact that the movie was filmed there. The fact it was will always make it a little bit more special for me. New Zealand is a beautiful country. I have been there. It is genuinely my favourite country to visit in the whole world. I'm so looking forward to going back one day. And I love the fact that this little movie was filmed in New Zealand and everyone who worked on it, pretty much apart from obviously the actors, were Kiwi. And this is a great showcase for New Zealand cinema. And I can't stress enough that without this movie being filmed in New Zealand, we would not have the brilliance that is The Lord of the Rings also filmed in New Zealand. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm so passionate about this movie. I really want you to go <laughs> watch it. Especially if you haven't because it genuinely is so deserving of your time. Basically, pretty much everything in this movie is a precursor to what Peter Jackson will do next. Everything in The Frighteners leads to The Lord of the Rings trilogy. 
The Lord of the Rings trilogy is one of the most beloved and well-respected trilogies of film ever made. Everything from the balance between practical effects and CGI, the New Zealand-based production, the fact that Universal offered Peter Jackson the opportunity to make King Kong, everything from The Frighteners leads to Lord of the Rings. And The Frighteners may not have made any money. It may have suffered for the R rating slapped on it. But all that spare computing power sure came in handy for Lord of the Rings. When we appreciate Lord of the Rings through its beauty, storytelling and compelling narrative, first praise has to go to Tolkien, of course, then to Peter Jackson and Weta. But we also need to remember and give The Frighteners its dues. This is a really special little movie. It's a stepping stone onto so much bigger and better from Peter Jackson. So next time you watch Lord of the Rings, and this is something that I'm going to be doing soon myself, I'm going to be doing a Lord of the Rings rewatch. Next time you do that, think of the Frighteners and how the Frighteners made Lord of the Rings possible. It's, oh, it blows my mind. It's made me love the Frighteners so much more. To, to go through this journey with the Frighteners, to watch it again and to research it and to realise all of these links with the Frighteners and Lord of the Rings just makes me appreciate this movie so much more that it frustrates me that it didn't do better and it frustrates me that people have forgotten about it. Please remember The Frighteners next time you watch Lord of the Rings or even The Hobbit, even though The Hobbit's not as good as Lord of the Rings. <laughs> just, just don't forget The Frighteners, guys. Right, I'm going to move on. I move on from my impassioned speech about The Frighteners. I'm going to move on to the obligatory Keanu reference. So this is a part of the podcast where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. And linking Keanu to The Frighteners... <laughs> The only thing I could think of, and this is a very, very loose link, but the only thing I could think of was to link it via Constantine. Just from the fact that they've both got supernatural links, we see heaven and hell depicted in The Frighteners. I'm not sure which version of hell is worse, but the version in The Frighteners is definitely more gruesome, especially with the little worm things that kind of go into their bodies. That is really, really gruesome. And I would have given that an R rating too. Just just saying. So yeah, that, that's kind of my link. I know it's really bad. But I'm kind of reaching the point that finding a unique link is getting more and more difficult every single time. So just to quickly say, the music for The Frighteners is obviously a Danny Elfman score. It sounds like a Danny Elfman score. And it also includes a cover of Blue Oyster Cult's Don't Fear the Reaper by the Muttonbirds. They are also from New Zealand. They are an alt-rock band. So let's talk about the release for The Frighteners. Because this is kind of where The Frighteners really suffered. So it has an R rating. Obviously, an R rating, unlike Deadpool, an R rating is a bit of a death knell. So The Frighteners was released on the 19th of July, 1996. This was several weeks after Independence Day, which was still sitting at the top of the US box office. It also opened on the same day as the 1996 Summer Olympics in Atlanta. The marketing had been quite ubiquitous, with the posters not really saying much about the movie, although the white poster with the skull coming through is such a great image. It's one of my favourite images ever, actually. The Frighteners opened at number five at the US box office, and to be fair, it was the highest grossing new release of that week. But the existing films at the box office were having a much greater impact. The Frighteners was made on a budget of $26 million and it would go on to make $29.4 million worldwide. 
Critically, like its tone, critics would view the Frighteners as being uneven, despite being, at the time, because this was 1996, obviously, visually striking and completely different to anything else that was out. Ironically, if it had stuck to its October 1996 release, it may have been better received, but who knows? Obviously, there were no sequels to this movie because this movie didn't do very well. So, of course, it's not going to have a sequel. However, it did spawn the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So, that's its legacy right there. Let's move over to social media thoughts. Let's see what everyone else thinks of The Frighteners, whether people are as impassioned about The Frighteners as I am. Genuinely, I don't think anyone could be. <laughs> I think it's just me. However, we're going to start with the patrons and we're going to start with Andy. And Andy says... The Frighteners is the very definition of the middle movie from a guy who first started tasting India Ward's greatness in Heavenly Creatures to his career-defining work in the Lord of the Rings series... It's a solid major studio release that shows the future potential of what Peter Jackson was capable of, but is primarily a showcase of the always wonderful Michael J. Fox. Full disclosure, I have only seen the movie once on its release, and let's be honest, 1996 was a very weird year for me. Perhaps I should try to scope this one out again to see how 25 years have aged it. And Andy, before I give a plug for your podcast, I implore you to find this movie 25 years later, after you first saw it, and please watch it. And please update me and let me know what you think. Because I genuinely think that this is such a treasure of a movie. And honestly, I really want the world to embrace The Frighteners. 25 years later, this is the renaissance for The Frighteners this year. 25 years, renaissance year for The Frighteners. Let's get The Frighteners out there. Yeah, please let me know what you think, Andy. And Andy is one of the hosts of the tremendous podcast, which is Geek Salad. They are a brilliant podcast. They are basically a one-stop shop for all of your geeky podcast needs. They cover movies, music, TV, games, literally anything and everything that's geek-related. I am actually going on their podcast at the end of July. I don't know when that episode is going to be airing. I assume sometime in August. And I am currently trying to fix my scheduling out and to get Andy back on this podcast because this will be potentially his third guest appearance on this podcast. And we've spoken about it. We know what we're doing. I just need to get my bumming gear and get him on. So one day, listeners, Andy will return. But until then, we get his wonderful comments every week. Thank you so much, Andy. We also have Sam who says, It deserves to be talked about way more than it is. Such an underrated gem. Wish Peter Jackson would make a return to horror. And based on this, I think we all do. Um, and Sam, uh, and sometimes Liz, Kahu, Matthew, and occasionally Stacey host movie reviews in 20 Qs, the podcast where they watch a movie and then they ask 20 really weird, bizarre, odd and strange questions about it. It's actually one of my absolute favourite podcasts for a really good reason. And obviously... I mean, just in case you needed some sort of further enticement, that podcast is also based in New Zealand, just like this movie. So why wouldn't you? Let's move on. We have another comment from Scott who says, Love this from the moment I saw it at the cinema and regularly wheel it out for a rewatch or to badger other people to see it, which they inevitably love. Smart, funny, creepy and unlike anything else. Sounds a little bit like me. Uh <laughs> I'm 
so funny. Anyway, so Scott is one of the hosts of a Monkey See Monkey Review podcast. It's a really lovely little podcast that's just so enthusiastic about film. Uh, Scott and I actually went to see Black Widow together last week and he's just a really, really lovely guy. Uh, And not only that, the podcast is really great too. So I know they are on a little hiatus at the moment, but they do have other episodes available. So please make sure you check out that podcast. Another patron comment from Brendan who says, The brightness is both a joyfully macabre expression of Jackson's well-established horror sensibilities and black humour, but it's also an able demo tape for the director's imminent foray into bigger fantastical films. The effects still largely hold up, the mystery isn't terribly difficult but plays fair, and the cast, especially Michael J. Fox, hit exactly the right note between comic exaggeration and emotional vulnerability. And the final patron comment is from Dan who says, A great horror movie that doesn't feel like a horror movie. Michael J. Fox has charisma in spades and the supporting cast are perfect. And as always, a huge thank you to the patrons of this podcast, not only for supporting me, but also for providing comments every week. You guys are amazing. Thank you so much. And just to add that Brendan and Dan don't have podcasts, uh, which is why I'm not plugging anything for them. We will move over to Twitter. Uh, Quite a few comments on Twitter, actually, which was not surprising for me because I know a lot of Twitter really love this movie. Uh, We'll start with at oral underscore MFC, who said... Great performances, but Jake Boosie stands out for me. The flashbacks to Bartlett's killing spree are genuinely chilling. It makes his cartoonish derangement as a ghost stand out, showing how the afterlife has changed him over the decades. Also, Jeffrey Coombs is always a delight. At Stephen Press 3 said, Too clever by half for the average horror fan. At Holmes Movies Pod said, An underrated horror comedy with some visual and special effects which still hold up in a charming B-movie sort of way. One of Michael J. Fox's best performances, Jeffrey Coombs is wonderful as well and he steals the second half of the film. Nice little pre-Lord of the Rings film from Peter Jackson. At Chance Women or Five agreed with that and just posted a gift that said 100%. And at I Hate Your Taste said, I love this movie as a kid. It's so fun and charming and very underrated. I find few people have even heard of it. We'll move over to Instagram and we have a few more comments over on Instagram as well, which is incredible. So we'll start with at the podcast nobody asked for who simply said what a film at Nicola's kitchen says such a great movie at it goes down in the pm said i remember this movie at sassy lassie 76 said i remember seeing this in the theater with a school friend there weren't very many people in the theater that day but we had a blast watching this is a movie i watch annually i love michael j fox in this role the scene in the hospital when michael j fox has to fight jake boosie and d wallace is just scary enough and edge of your seat exciting you can't help but cheer for fox the whole time no comments on facebook this time around but a huge thank you to everyone who took the time to comment on the frighteners it does feel like a genuinely underrated movie but i'm so pleased that people have kind of come out in spades to support it in the comments because This movie really, really does deserve the support. Uh, So thank you so much to everyone who's provided a comment. I appreciate on this episode that I probably have been a little bit more passionate than I normally am. And there's a really good reason for that because The Frighteners is such an underrated forgotten gem. In the horror comedy genre, it's easily a great double bill with something like Beetlejuice or even Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight actually is probably more suitable. (laughs) They definitely deserve to be more than just a Tales from the Crypt movie. That's despite my love for Demon Knight. The fact it is so forgotten feels unjust. Consider what it went on to do 
And hopefully your appreciation for this movie can only grow. Sure, it's not perfect. It does feel a little choppy. The comedy can feel uneven. And yes, the effects have aged and the ending does feel contrived. But these are really minor issues, actually. When the frightness works, it works well. Realising the dead can die by the hands of the dead will never not be shocking. The reveal of Patricia Bradley as the evil accomplice her mother said that she was is this subversion of the evil matriarch trope and casting Dee Wallace Stone as well, known for her really good motherly roles, really was a stroke of genius for this movie. The legacy of the Frighteners may not be due to the movie being a huge success, but it was enough to give Peter Jackson the reign to the adaptations of Tolkien's beloved books. But that story is for another episode or three of this podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on The Frighteners. If you love this episode, you can help Verbal Diorama grow and be noticed by others by doing one of the following things. You can leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or something like Podchaser. You can retweet or like posts on social media. You can also follow me on social media. Social media information to follow. Or you can simply just tell your friends or a family member about this podcast and about The Frighteners, and maybe get your friend or family member to watch The Frighteners. That would be great. <clears throat> and if you did like this episode on The Frighteners, you might also like one of the following episodes. So, episode 26, Constantine, I've mentioned that. That is a bit of an earlier episode, so sound quality is probably not as good, I'll be completely honest. But it is a solid Keanu Reeves movie. It's not faithful to the original comic, but who cares? It's a really fun movie. People really need to appreciate Constantine. And episode 66, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight. Because it's just so much fun. Billy Zane is having the time of his life in this movie. And also, Jada Pinkett Smith is literally a black woman saving the world. And no other movie at that time had a black woman being the lead character and saving the world. So, Tales from the Crypt Demon Knight... It's pretty good. Episode 65, Ghostbusters. Now, this was an episode that I did with the wonderful Mr. Simon Brew of Film Stories. And I thought it would be quite a nice little companion to this because, yeah, it's also a horror comedy. It does kind of lean more towards the comedy, but it also has ghosts in it. So, <laughs> and honestly, people need to appreciate Ghostbusters 2016 a little bit more because yes it is the female one by the way we didn't talk about the male one we talked about the female one yeah that movie definitely deserves a bit more appreciation and obviously episode 94 Beetlejuice which I do think would be a great double feature like a Halloween feature you could watch this movie you could watch Demon Knight you could watch Beetlejuice that would be a great triple bill genuinely I, I might do that myself <laughs> I love Beetlejuice. Uh, Beetlejuice is one of my favourite horror comedies of all time. And I had so much fun making that episode. I've had fun making this episode too. It's a different type of fun. <laughs> because I just feel so much frustration for the Frighteners. And I just really, really want people to see it and appreciate it. But anyway, give me feedback on my recommendations. Let me know if you think I got them right. So, let me tell you about the next episode. 2021 hasn't really given us much in the realm of film just purely because cinemas haven't really been open studios aren't really releasing much but there was one movie that came out this year i've seen it three times i'm going to be seeing it for a fourth time for this particular episode 
and I love it more and more every single time. It's from the studio that brought you the Emoji Movie. And it's also a studio that are yet again proving that they are the animation studio to watch. Forget Disney, forget Pixar. Well, don't forget them completely. But really, Sony Pictures Animation, they really are the ones to watch. I guarantee you, they gave us Spider-Man to the Spider-Verse in 2018. And in 2021, they gave us the Mitchells versus the Machines. I'm so excited. I don't know if you can tell, I have a huge smile on my face just thinking about this movie. The Mitchells versus the Machines is so wonderful, so brilliant, so special. And honestly, I was desperate to talk about it. So I pinched it from Rotoscoperama, which is my forthcoming animation podcast. I basically said to Rotoscoperama, no, you're not having the Mitchells versus the Machines. Verbal Diorama is having the Mitchells versus the Machines. And I'm going to talk about it next week. So please make sure you come back for that little treasure because I'm so excited to be talking about the Mitchells versus the Machines. Right, if you want to follow me on social media, you can do. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd. If you wish to sign up and support the show financially, you're under no obligation to do so. And the vast majority of people don't, and that's absolutely fine. But if you do want to, you can go to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon, and you can become a patron. Tiers start at $1 a month and they go up to ridiculous amount of money a month. But I'm so grateful to all of the people who support this podcast. I give them a shout out every episode. So a huge thank you, as always, to the patrons of Verbal Diorama. To Simon E, Sade, Hardy L, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Jason, Kristen, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Mark, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Dan and Sam. You guys definitely don't need to fear the Reaper. I have a merch store as well. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch if you want merch and stuff. But I'm probably going to find another merch store soon, uh, to be completely honest with you. You can email me, verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi. You can also say hi over at verbaldiorama.com as well. And I also write for Film Stories. You can go over to the website, filmstories.co.uk. I also write for the magazine as well, which comes out every month. So please check out the website. Please buy a copy of the magazine. And please support independent publications. And finally, death ain't no way to make a living. Bye. Movie should know.